What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. What do you make of masks as a political statement? How did we get there? Uh, hang on a minute, I'm going to put up my mask. Uh, <laughs> in a, a, a situation where I can't be six feet away from someone else, the mask seems to make, uh, make a good deal of sense. Welcome to the National Podcast of Texas. First, a programming note. Hopefully short term, we've changed the show's production schedule. Episodes will be shorter with no set release day. And because of circumstances, interviews will be conducted by phone. We'll do our best to make up for the quality of the audio with the quality of the guests. I'm Andy Langer. Our guest this week is United States Congressman Michael C. Burgess, a Republican who's represented Texas's 26th district since 2003 in the United States House of Representatives. He represents the majority of Denton County and parts of Tarrant County, and he's the most senior medical doctor serving in the House. His 2020 re-election campaign has been endorsed by President Trump, and he currently sits on the House Energy and Commerce Committee as the Republican leader of the Subcommittee on Health, and also sits on the Subcommittee on Oversight and Investigations and on Consumer Protection and Commerce. He's also on the House Rules Committee. The congressman was raised in Denton, got his undergraduate and a master's degree from North Texas State University, and received his MD from the University of Texas Medical School in Houston. Healthcare legislation's been one of his long-term priorities, and he's voted to repeal the Affordable Care Act over 50 times. Since January, Burgess has called for hearings to improve the country's public health response to the pandemic and expressed some frustration that the House didn't move quickly enough to convene those hearings. Our conversation, recorded Thursday afternoon by phone, finds Burgess addressing Texas's reopening, the debate over masks, the availability of testing, and what the government did and didn't do right in the early days of the pandemic. This is Congressman Michael Burgess. So welcome. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me on. We've had recently a bunch of doctors and vaccine experts on, and I've asked them each time as a starting question, what's the biggest thing we don't know about the virus yet that would be perhaps the most universally useful thing to know? Well, we truly at this point don't know about the infectivity. We think we understand some things more so than we did in in early January and early February. But still, there seems to be some big questions between who gets exposed and who actually gets the illness and of who gets the illness, who actually gets critically ill and who has mild or symptom-free uh, a disease that results in antibody production, which has found them well after the fact, but uh, results in a clinical illness. And is that person, in fact, infective at some point along the line in in their uh, time with the virus, or is it uh, because they're asymptomatic or are they simply not infective at all? And I don't think there's a good understanding of just exactly where all that falls out. So that's going to be critical to understanding uh, just the biologic behavior, the natural history of this illness. It is a new it is a new illness. So people don't have that information. They don't have a, a, 
a vast uh, amount of historical data to uh, to look back at and, and compare. But it, like anything else, uh, you know, a great deal has been learned about the virus in the relatively short period of time that it's uh, that it's interacted with uh, with people. As a doctor and a congressman, do you remember exactly when you started taking it seriously? Yes, it was sometime in the middle part of January. I'm going to say the 15th or the 17th when the stories broke that China had shut down a city of 10 million people. And it was a city that I'd never heard of before, so that was one thing. Uh, but the other was, uh, that's a pretty bold step for, for any government, particularly the uh, you know totalitarian Chinese government, to just say, we're shutting down a city of 10 million. I mean, what would be comparable in our country, basically New York City. Uh, so that's the sort of order of magnitude that the, the problem that... that that I thought they were seeing and to which they were reacting, which meant it was a pretty serious illness to to have that, uh, what, what some people might even describe as an over-the-top response. But clearly the early data that they were getting on the ground was this was a pretty serious, this was a pretty serious disease. And then, you know, you'd read things or you'd see things online and social media, Twitter and YouTube, where people would post videos from China. You weren't sure if they were accurate, but if they were accurate, then it was pretty darn serious. So things like people being passed out or dead at a bus stop on a city street. I mean, that's not something you see every day. Uh, the use of multiple occupants to one body bag that was being reported in some of their some of their hospitals early on uh, these sort of benchmarks to me said oh my god this is serious now i will say that uh we got they weren't classified briefings i did get a couple of classified briefings early on because i was concerned about the possibility of of uh, this being something that was purposely manufactured but some of the member-only briefings we had early on from the from public health experts, same public health experts that you 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 see all the time on on television now, uh, were I don't want to give the wrong impression. It's not that they were overly confident, but it was uh, the, a reminder that. You know, SARS was beaten. SARS was a similar illness to this, a coronavirus, a novel coronavirus at the time. It was 20 years before, but SARS was basically beaten with public health measures, quarantine, contact tracing. There was never a satisfactory antiviral. There was never a satisfactory vaccine for SARS that was... uh, there may be one on the shelf somewhere now, but there wasn't one back then that was able to combat the disease. And yet it would be pointed out to us uh, that, in, in fact, we were able to beat SARS and, and beat it again with the old-fashioned public health methods. I do remember asking early on whether that was a consequence of luck or knowledge or skill <laughs> and was told it was you know, and it was a kind of a lighthearted answer, but it's a, some some of each was kind of how it was described. So there, yeah, I think there was a, a recognition that yeah, we beat SARS, but there may have been an element of luck involved in that. Certainly in Toronto, they weren't as they weren't as lucky. Uh, 
perhaps took them a little bit longer to recognize and to do some travel restrictions. And as a consequence, uh, the travel industry in Toronto was much more severely affected back in 2003 than, than any place in, in this country. Um, perhaps the object lesson for us then was, and now was you really do need to take this stuff quite seriously. The president did exactly the right thing to restrict travel from mainland China. Uh, the people who are critical now of the administration said, well, he should have done more, he should have done earlier, okay. But at the time, that was seen as a pretty gutsy move. Uh, Secretary Azar, when he came on that uh, Thursday or Friday afternoon and made the announcement in late January that for the first time in 50 years, the United States is exerting a quarantine over travel from a specific part of the world. I can remember interacting with the Obama administration on Ebola and, and literally begging for a travel restriction from Monrovia, Liberia, and never being able to get anywhere with anyone in the administration that uh, would accept that as even uh, remotely possible, necessary, or desirable. Uh, the administration this time uh, did jump on it. And, you know, retrospect, uh, things would have been significantly worse significantly earlier had they not done that. So cutting off the travel from China, very important. Uh, not coincidentally cutting it off from other areas. You know, for one of the things you want to look back and say that could have been handled better. That that would be one of them. But I don't. You know, again, at the time, I don't think anyone. I don't think anyone actually really understood just how serious that problem was. But is your contention that we used February and March in the best way we could when you were calling for conversations and hearings about? The stockpile about mental health, racial disparities, provider relief, testing, all of these things, and some of them still exist as yes. shortages and shortfalls in terms of the government response to this. Well, when people say the government response, usually they're uh, they're wanting to point fingers at the administration and say the administration failed here or there. Uh, look, Congress had a responsibility here. We, and the, you've probably heard me say this before, we in the United States House of Representatives, the Health Subcommittee of the Energy and Commerce Committee, had passed the Pandemic All-Hazard Preparedness Act. We worked on it all of the Congress before this one. Uh, it got held up in the Senate at the 11th hour, as things sometimes will, but then got across the finish line early in 2019, was signed into law by the president in June. 2019, and the virus hit with a vengeance at the end of December, early part of January of the following, literally six months later. Um, where was our interest and our curiosity in, okay, January, maybe that can be forgiven, but certainly during the month of February, starting to hear more and more about the problems that other countries are having. Where is our curiosity about the bill, the big bill that we had just passed and signed into law? Did we do it right? Did we get it right? Uh, is it is the pandemic all hazard preparedness act pre pre behaving as we would have predicted? Were there things that perhaps we wish we had done differently or better? Or are there things that we still could come back and revisit even now, meaning February or even early March of, of, of 2020, but we never, we never did that. We had hearings on almost everything else under the sun, from horse racing to flavored tobacco to vaping. And remember the big issue was the, the, the lung injury associated with vaping that it sort of popped up uh, the, the previous fall. And that's what held a, a lot of people's attention. That's what held some of our 
uh, some of our legislation was designed around uh, working to control vaping when, in fact, we probably should have been focused on the uh, on the coronavirus. But you know, you learn things from from that experience. From the administration standpoint, I don't think anyone could have predicted when when early in the course of this, uh, if someone had said to me, "Well," The CDC is going to CDC is going to handle the testing, and, it, and it's going to be all right. I just said, "Oh, of course, that's right. That's what the CDC does. That's what they're designed to do." And I don't understand to this day what happened at the CDC that there was the uh, missed opportunity that clearly happened, where testing was not accurate and way behind where it should have been, and it took literally most of the month of February, I think it was February 27th or 28th, where uh, Dr. Hahn, the administrator of the Food and Drug Administration, said that he was he was doing an emergency use authorization for different tests to be done for coronavirus. But it was, uh, well, let's say, the week before Valentine's Day through the, the next three weeks till the end of February that... Uh, You've kept hearing that, oh, you know, there's a problem with the test, but they're now they're on it, they've got it. There's a reagent problem, but that's fixed, and now they're now they're on it, now they've got it. But the fact of the matter is, through the entire month of February, I don't know what the total number of tests were, but I, I doubt very seriously it was over 100. And somewhere, someone in the CDC, which is our premier public health agency in this country, realistically premier public health agency in the world, uh, why did someone not appreciate the fact that we've done 100 tests and they've done 100,000 in South Korea? So, so that it was that discrepancy, that mismatch that, again, even to this day, I, I don't understand what the problem was there and, and why the why the misfire. But, you know, i got to tell you, the types of tests that we're talking about, the uh, it's called a reverse transcriptase uh, polymerase chain reaction, RT-PCR reaction test that was done to to see if the virus was present in a sample. That's not that exotic a test. And hospital labs do that type of test all the time. It's one of the ways that people test for HIV. It's one of the, for, for AIDS. It's one of the ways that people test for certain types of the, of the flu virus. So it's not that exotic to test and it is just it to this day it continues to bother me that it took us so long or that we lost so much time in the in the testing in the testing process but i don't think I mean, it wasn't a single individual who said hey we're going to do everything we can to make sure we don't get the test data out um no it was a it was a culture it was a a regimen of the you know the regulatory side on on laboratory developed tests perhaps there was some institutional keepers on part of the the CDC we do things better than anyone else we don't need anyone else but when they really were clearly getting into trouble and should have been asking for help what's not clear to me is that they did ask for help now things are clearly a lot better today on the testing front and you've got uh, different companies stepping forward and they've you can just see the you put a significant number of federal dollars into testing programs, and sure enough, there's a lot of people that show up and say, "Hey, I can do that." Uh, so the good news is there are 
there are lots of different ways and different places that the tests are being done. Uh, the point of care tests where it is uh, kind of give you an answer right now in the, just in the next 15 or 20 minutes as to whether or not you've got the virus or the type of test that you collect and send off to a, uh, a reference lab and it takes you several days to get the result back. But nevertheless, the testing is, is, is much more widely available today than it was uh, in in the early part of the course of this illness. It's great that it's available today, right. but it, uh, it, there was a missed opportunity early on. But one of the things you're interested in is the racial disparity, and we know that communities of color will be the most deeply impacted by the economic damage. They're also testing at higher rates. And NPR found that in an investigation in four out of the six largest cities in Texas, those testing sites are disproportionately located in whiter neighborhoods. So we may not even have a good accounting of this disparity. This is something you want to look into. Well, it, it, it's important that we that we learn as much as we can. I know in Dallas, the, the two drive-through testing sites, uh, one was located just north of downtown, and then one was located in, in Oak Cliff. Uh, in the southern part of the city, so you can't really say that those were in the the most exclusive Highland Park neighborhoods. Um, again, one one in the shadow, literally the shadow of downtown Dallas, and, and the other in the uh, lower income neighborhood in in the southern part of Dallas. So, uh, from just from what I saw on the ground from early on, I mean, my only complaint was that we didn't have more testing sites in Denver. Uh, they didn't they they weren't being stood up fast enough to uh, to to satisfy me, but the fact that they were getting done and that they were providing uh, a significant amount of surveillance firepower to communities in in the Metroplex was was important. And I think the governor, when he first announced the drive-through testing facilities, one was going to be located in San Antonio. I don't know which part of San Antonio that location was, but it struck me at the time that uh, that's good. You want to get a good representation of uh, across multiple ethnicities and a higher percentage of or higher proportion of of uh, Hispanic Americans in San Antonio. So that is a good good location for that for that site. But the other problem with the early on testing was the requirement that someone be symptomatic, and that uh, hey, we've only got a limited number of these tests. So if you don't have a fever, if you don't have symptoms, uh, it there, there were some barriers to testing, and I do recall talking to uh, folks at, at Parkland when they stood up their testing facility. After a few weeks, they relaxed their criteria because they realized that they probably weren't testing the number of people that they should be testing, and maybe if they relaxed their, their criteria for their barriers to entry, they would get a more representational sampling. But we're going to learn a lot more about that. I think one of the interesting things about Parkland and the I, have not talked with them in the last couple of weeks, but my understanding from talking to people at the uh, at the state level is they have some of the best results, and I'm I'm anxious actually to to follow up with them and and hear what their experience has been. Parkland is where I did my residency. I have a, hold them in high regard, and I know they are always trying to practice the best medicine and always always have high expectations of themselves. Well, they do serve a, a low-income and predominantly minority population, so I am interested is, to, does that hold true? Are there results there? Uh, does, are, 
are there is their claim to to superior results is that true across all of the all all of the income strata that they uh, that they that they serve that they represent and across all of the ethnic strata that they represent so it'd be interesting for me to 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 hear that to understand that is just a completely uh, separate way of looking at some things when we had a hearing on maternal mortality in our committee earlier in the year and again the focus was is is this occurring in a disproportionate way in low income and minority communities and there were some people who made that assertion i had asked that we have a witness from parkland hospital and we did and parkland as i remember yeah it predominant that what is its patient population uh, if they either have no insurance or Medicaid, they generally tend to be, there does tend to be a disproportionate number of, of, of minority population, and yet their numbers, their maternal, their numbers for maternal mortality were, were almost superior to anyone else in the country. So even given those constraints of a population that they serve, uh, they're able to turn in an A-plus product every day because of their, their commitment to excellence. So I think the same thing, I'm going to find the same thing to be true on the on their treatment of, of coronavirus. I'm, I'm anxious to follow up with them and see if my, uh, if my thesis there is correct. But it's, uh, it, it is important that, um, well, look, if you take the oath, you, you serve as a physician, and the, the calling is to be worthy to serve the suffering. And to be worthy to serve the suffering, you've got to do your best job every day. What do you make of masks as a political statement? How did we get there? Uh, hang on a minute. I'm gonna put my mask. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm in a I'm in a room by myself. So if I look, if I can socially distance, I don't wear a mask because it is a nuisance and my phone doesn't recognize me. Um, if I'm in a, a situation where social distancing is is certainly not assured, if I'm going into my Walmart. And it generally tends to be pretty crowded these days. I'm going to put a mask on. If uh, people want to think of me what they think of me because I'm wearing a mask, okay, so be it. But if I'm in close proximity to people I don't know and don't know their health status, uh, a, a mask probably makes some amount of, of good sense. And I'm just I'm just talking about the you know the regular surgical type of mask that uh, that anyone can buy. I'm not talking about an N95 mask. I do think uh, for, the, for the sophisticated personal protective equipment, it ought to be reserved for the people who are on the front lines, the front lines of our medical of our medical corps, because uh, they're the ones who, who are putting themselves at risk, and they are the ones that need it. For me in the Walmart, uh, yeah, take a little extra precaution. There's also the, the, the contention that it, if I'm sick, I'm less likely to give it to someone else. Um, I have a little trouble with that as a notion because if I'm sick, I shouldn't be out in the first place. People who feel ill should not go into public spaces right now. It is not. Uh, it is not the. That is not a good neighbor policy. And if you're ill, stay stay home. Except you can be carrying it and not know that you're ill. And, and that's the and that's the, the the bugaboo with this with this particular virus. So to wear a virus, uh, to wear a virus, to wear a mask. If I'm out in in a, a, a situation where I can't be six feet away from somewhere, someone else, whether it's to protect me or protect them, the mask seems to make uh, make a good deal of sense. Are the answers to how do you balance the economy and public health, how do you balance people wanting freedom versus the public health risk, do those answers have to be politicized? 
no, nothing has to be politicized, but but that's where you we know are. That everything is. Yeah. <laughs> so it doesn't have to be, but that's the reality. Look, in and here's something that I, I'm not sure that we completely understand why it is that uh, warmer locations like a Dallas or uh, a city in Florida, why they are less affected than, say, a New York City or a big city in New Jersey. Is it because of the proximity of people? Is it because of the warmer climate, the more rays of sunshine that are reaching the surface of the earth? I don't know. We'll figure all of that out in due time. But there do seem to be differences as to the biologic behavior of the disease in different parts of the country. As a consequence, does it make sense to shut down and shut in all economic activity in a part of the country where the course of the disease has been relatively modest? And uh, there's no question the damage to the economy, and this is what I didn't predict, and I don't know that I could have predicted early on in the course of this, because of the because of the serious nature of the illness and because of the uh, amount of fear that, that people carried with them uh, over the, the, the horrific tales that they heard of what life was like for a coronavirus patient in the ICU who was dying of their illness. I mean, all of that sounded pretty, pretty desperate, pretty severe. So people, just as you know, normal consequence of self-preservation, tended to restrict their activities. Now, uh, Again, I, I don't know that I could have predicted how serious an effect that would have economically. When you look back at it, you say, "My gosh, you, you shut in, you, you shut in eighty, ninety percent of the economy, and guess what? You shut in eighty or ninety percent of the economy, and people are going to suffer." And indeed, they have. And I do know in the part of uh, the world that I represent, probably the bigger concern now is not about the coronavirus; it's the fact that. Unemployment has become a serious, serious problem in an area where, I mean, unemployment, we, we hadn't had a problem with unemployment in years, in decades, in the north part of Texas. Uh, we had a full employment economy just really a few short weeks ago. And now we're, we're one of the most, uh, one of the hardest hit areas in the state as far as when you look at the filings for new, uh, new unemployment benefits. So it is a, a terribly calamitous on on people's lives and families, their livelihoods, businesses they've worked all their lives to, to, to set up. Uh, you know, I get that, that that's a, that's a pretty serious and daunting position for, for people to be in. And as a consequence, the likelihood of having depression, suicide, domestic abuse, I mean, all of those things that are associated with in, increased amounts of, of uh, interpersonal stress, yeah, they're going to increase. No, no great surprise there. What's the proper trade-off? And I don't know if anyone can, can properly make that assessment. You want to do the things that are necessary that that seem necessary when the when the pandemic is 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 still to reach its peak. But at the same time, you don't want to hold people hold their level of activity to such that they're damaging themselves, seriously damaging themselves economically uh, by by holding on to that for too long. Remember, the, the big game plan in all of this early on was let's keep our hospitals from being overwhelmed. Let's keep our ICU occupancy where it will be manageable. Let's make sure we don't run out of ventilators and have to ration them. So that was the whole purpose in sort of the restrictive activity of the middle part of March through the through the middle part of April. Now that that 
uh, nightmare scenario did not occur, uh, appropriate to turn attention to the other part of this equation is how have people been hurt by not being able to engage in their normal economic activities? How have people been hurt by the increased number of, of jobless individuals? And it is appropriate to, to, to focus on that now. How does the pandemic change the conversation about health care? Do you still support repealing Obamacare in the middle of a pandemic? Well, I can't say that it's been in, been terribly helpful, but uh, I think I think the the question actually shifts a little bit, and I, I can certainly see where the people who favor a greater greater participation of the federal government in the health care system uh, see that as, hey, this is the way to, to get more care to more people and keep the cost down. But it's also a way to restrict innovation and restrict choices. And is that necessarily a good thing at a time where I would argue that innovation is absolutely critical to our, 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 our survival as a, as a civilization? Without innovation, I mean, innovation is going to hold the key to, to getting us past this. It always has before, and it always will in the future. And we will get past it. I mean, I think that's important for people to remember as well. We've been through pretty tough things before as far as illnesses go, and we always do emerge on the other side. You always do reach a point where uh, the number of, of vulnerable people in the population who've never seen the virus before, that number diminishes as more and more people get it, recover, and now are, are seemingly make up the part of the population that has a residual resistance. That changes the whole nature, and the ability of this virus to spread rapidly becomes tempered. Uh, doesn't mean that we won't have a second round of it. Of course we could, but the second round is likely to be a little, a little less intense in the first round. And of course, we're learning so much more about things, the medical countermeasures that are available, the antivirals. And yes, there will be a vaccine. I think there'll be a vaccine. My personal feeling is there'll be a vaccine sooner rather than rather than later. Uh, what I see, the activity at the, at the FDA with them being willing to license a, a, a promising vaccine candidate uh, before it actually gets FDA approval, that's a really a different way to to approach things. That's a new a, a, a new concept. Now, the company that does that is taking a risk, and they may end up with a bunch of manufactured vaccine which never gets licensed. In which case, they will have uh, uh, they'll have a loss on their hands. But if there is a if there is a good candidate, and also, there's going to be a combination of what are called phase two and phase three clinical trials. So there's some streamlining of the of the investigatory process to get these uh, to get these things approved. Um, if there is the ability of a company to start significant manufacture while we're still waiting on the final approval that hey, it is okay, it is safe, and you can in fact use this broadly in the population. Um, That'll be a that'll be a game changer because the old way of doing it was you got to go through phase one, then you got to go through phase two, then you got to go through phase three, and then you get approval, and then you start the manufacturing process. Well, all of that really stretches out the timeline, and stretching out the timeline right now is a luxury we don't have. If there is a way to safely get the vaccine through the process and through the regulatory process and the approval process. And again, I would emphasize safely, 
and and start to get it into people's arms sooner rather than later, that would be I would see that as a good thing. As kind of the experience with Ebola back in 2014, except that they weren't really willing to uh, proceed with with widespread vaccination in uh, August and September of 2014. The vaccine was pretty much developed at that point, but it was still it was still awaiting clearance of the trials, and they did wait till the end of the year till they got the final amounts of data in. So it uh, you probably lost some people that uh, otherwise wouldn't have lost um, because of the delay of getting the Ebola vaccine out there. I think that's one of the lessons learned from the past. There's, there's a great article, and I don't have the uh, the reference source for you, but it was a 2015 article on sort of the the FDA and Ebola lessons learned from the from the pand- from the uh, from the epidemic in Western Africa, uh, and it's great. They should do that kind of look back. We should learn from those experiences. This time, I think there will be uh, uh, there'll be some pressure if there's if there appears to be a safe and and uh, reasonable vaccine. Uh, I think there'll be some push to get it out there. It doesn't mean that everyone should be required to take it. Uh, that's one of the biggest mistakes you can make with a new vaccine is to require people to take it. When I was in medical school, there was a round of swine flu that was pretty bad. And uh, remember President Gerald Ford uh, said that it was a mandatory that everyone take this new swine flu vaccine. Well, unfortunately, it caused some problems, some rather serious problems. And uh, there was a they had to recall the, the mandatory order to give everyone the vaccine because it was causing more harm than it was helping anyone. We don't want that to be repeated. So you do want to make sure that the vaccine is safe. But boy, once you get to a point where you're reasonably sure of the safety and you do have the high enough levels of neutralizing antibodies in the serum that you tested people who've received the vaccine, let's not wait. Uh, I'd volunteer for it. I get that you're hopeful and that the second wave is, you hope it's less deadly than the first but what aspect of this pandemic keeps you up at night? What do you fear most? Well, it's the overlay for the, for the next wave. It's the overlay of the, if there is a second wave, the overlay on a kind of the normal appearance of the seasonal flu. So if you have a bad flu year, as well as a recurrent coronavirus uh, epidemic, that, uh, that can be a serious situation. From a doc standpoint, it can be difficult to tell the difference between the two in the clinic or the emergency room. Many of the symptoms are similar. Um, there's no question that we'll get more refined in our diagnostic capabilities over the next several months. So uh, maybe some of that uh, problem could be mitigated. But that is, uh, that's going to be one of the big challenges, particularly for people on the front lines who are, who are delivering the care. You're one of the few Texas Republicans who will do MSNBC. Uh, you're endorsed, though, by the president. Six months from now, yeah, is MSNBC this... BC hasn't had me on since I got that endorsement. <laughs> <laughs> is six months from now? Is the economy or is the way the administration handled this going to be the deciding factor for Texans at the polls? I think it'll be a combination of both. I mean, the economy is clearly very important to us. Uh, we haven't even talked about it, but you have the overlay of the difficulty that uh, we're having in the energy market right now that is uh, separate and apart from the uh, part of it's the virus because of the destruction of the demand side of the equation. But also you have uh, bad actors in the Middle East and Russia who are uh, doing their best to make sure that they clobber fracking in the state of Texas because they don't like us being able to be energy independent. 
So there's uh, there, there's some other factors there as well that we haven't talked about. No question the economy is going to be important, but I think if people see that, look, it hadn't been perfect. The response hadn't been perfect. It rarely is to something like this because you've never seen it before, and you don't know all the twists and turns it's going to take. But has there been an honest effort to to really get on top of this? Have people been willing to change their minds when new information becomes available? And, uh, you know, when I look at the people that the president has around him, not all of them agree with him politically, but he knows they're all important, that they all bring their particular contribution to the scientific side of this. And and honestly, I'd say that's a good thing. Now, will every part of the country feel the same way as, as my neck of the woods? Oh, I don't know. I hope they do, but they may not. The president obviously has his work to do to uh, cut out for him to uh, be successful in his reelection. But uh, even with where things are today, my estimation is a much better than even chance that the president gets reelected. Um, people, can, my estimation is people want their president to be successful. Uh, they want to see their president as having been uh, been the person that served their interest and served them well. There will be plenty of time and energy and advertising dollars spent trying to prove otherwise, but uh, that's my, my general take on it right now as we sit here in May, uh, six months before Election Day. And for all that's happened in three months, I recognize it's hard for you to look forward 10 years, but you're reasonably sure that you're going to be able to sleep at night 10 years from now knowing that you were as closely aligned as you are with this president? Oh, yeah. I just don't know if I'm going to be alive 10 years from now. I mean, I do have a shelf life. <laughs> but you make these decisions with legacy and serving your constituents in mind. Yeah, I think less about the legacy and more just trying to do the right thing with the data I have at the time. Are our politics forever broken, though? I mean, is this is has this no, all been, been a turning point for that? No, they've been broken since the time of Thomas Jefferson and John Adams. <laughs> I mean, realistically, we've had throughout our history, we've had uh, serious, serious, severe political fights. I mean, come on, this is nothing compared to the uh, Civil War. This is nothing compared to some of the other times we've had serious, serious discord in our country. And at the end of the day, to bring it to a close and back home, you're good with the way we're reopening? You feel confident when you see the pictures from the beaches and the crowded bars and now apparently we're going to have sporting events professional sports with 25 percent crowds but but you don't have concerns do, as I, a doctor or I do, do you trust, I, you may not yeah i trust people to use common sense for their own situation look uh, i'm significantly older than you are uh, i do have a touch of asthma so i probably won't be going to the bar you know what i mean mm-hmm. but uh it's free country, and if someone wants to assess their situation and, and behave differently, I, I don't know that I should necessarily restrict them. All right. Thank you. All right. Thank you. You can follow Congressman Burgess at Michael C. Burgess on Twitter and read what he calls his doctor's notes at burgess.house.gov.
Meanwhile, Brene Brown, who's essentially become America's therapist, is on the cover of the just-released June issue of Texas Monthly. Recently, we also lifted the paywall at TexasMonthly.com entirely. You can roam around TexasMonthly.com and enjoy everything, including our deep archive, absolutely free until the end of the year. And we'd love it if you consider here subscribing to our show, leaving a comment or rating us wherever you found us, and maybe even telling a friend. I'm Andy Langer, working with producer Brian Standifer. Thanks for being here, and thanks in advance for coming back next time. <laughs>